Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Growth Leap. I'm your host, Michel Gagnon. We talk to pretty awesome business builders who are designing disruptive and meaningful companies. Our guest today is not afraid of challenges. She founded the startup to take on not one, but two sustainability problems. Alina Bassi is founder and CEO of Clyderly, a Berlin-based startup that aims to reduce the fashion footprint and the usage of oil-based plastic by replacing it with its own patent-pending sustainable plastic alternative. Alina is a Google for Startups female founder alumni. She recently joined the Forbes 30 Under 30 and holds a master's degree in chemical engineering. She has a super cool story. She's converted coffee into biofuel and just launched Tech in Color. We talk about Clyderly's business model, her approach to prioritization, the metrics she uses to measure progress, and what's the future of the fashion industry. Enjoy. Alina Bassi, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Alina, you're the founder of Clyderly, who is based in Berlin. Your goal is to solve the problem of clothing waste from the fashion industry. Let's just start with the beginning. And, you know, can you tell us a bit about what Clyderly is all about and how it works? Yeah. Um, so well, my background, maybe that will help to kind of um, explain why I started doing this. I've worked in uh, sustainability for many years as a chemical engineer, um, initially solving um, problems like coffee waste and turning it into biofuels and turning it into uh, biodiesel to run buses in the UK. Also worked on projects such as like turning household waste into energy. So I've worked in waste streams for a while. But I one thing I realized quite heavily when I was in a trip to Tanzania in the end of 2018 is how large of a problem textile waste is. And it's something that we just possibly don't think about because we maybe don't see the large volumes of it. Uh, but it's a huge problem. Um, 87% of all the fabric that's used for clothing is going to landfill incineration. No matter what happens, if we donate it, eventually it's going there. So I decided that I think this is quite a big problem that I would like to tackle and try and solve. So that's what I'm doing with Cladly. I'm trying to divert the really end of life, end of value textiles that no one wants anymore, that even the charities say they cannot donate, and then recycle that and take it out of the waste stream and turn it into a replacement for plastic, meaning that you're essentially solving two very big environmental problems at once. You're replacing Mm -hmm. oil-based plastics, but you're also taking textile waste out of landfill. And a lot of this is really based on circular economy principles, where you just design things that will always have a next use case. So you're essentially never wasting anything. Can you tell us a bit how it works if we take a piece of cloth or a sweater that ends up at Clyderily? How does that actually work, you know, with your different partners and your customers? Mm -hmm. So we work with local charities in Berlin, but also large charities within Germany. And we're also working with a lot of fashion retailers to receive either donations or to receive um, some of their unsold inventory that they just cannot get rid of. Um, We then turn that into our material. Um, and that that material can be melted as in injection molding to basically different shapes and sizes. Um, our end customer can buy that material back, and they could have been the clothing um, the clothing waste provider. So making it very circular, uh, they can buy it back in the form of a clothing hanger. 
So mm-hmm. they can then use that in their store and show their customers that they're now replacing their clothing hangers made out of plastic by taking their textiles and using it for that. Another way that we can provide our customers with value is just selling the material directly to them as a replacement for plastic. So you use it in the same machinery and you don't need to make any changes to the equipment um, other than obviously different temperatures or pressures. Okay, so um, we've briefly talked about this just before getting started. So right now you're collecting clothes, Mm -hmm. you recycle them. And you end up with an output, which is that uh, sustainable alternative to oil-based plastic. This can be sold as just, you know, basic material to a manufacturer. Is this something that I could, you know, in a few years' time find in my uh, kids' toys? or Potentially, yeah, uh, depending on who would uh, purchase it from us. So if we worked with Lego, for example, which would be for me like an ideal customer, um, <laughs> then you would eventually find it in your children's toys. What's been your customer acquisition strategy? Did you decide to go after big manufacturers? You said you were talking about, you know, products that you've developed. What's been, let's say, the the, the strategy and the learnings? We've tried a few different things. You'd, I think traditionally, you would probably go directly to a manufacturer. But one thing we realized is the story is very important. The story is very powerful. And it's only the people who have that pain point who are the fashion brands. So we actually go to the clothing brands themselves and ask them if they'd like to work with us to either donate their clothing or to donate their clothing and then buy the end material. And that was kind of the strategy we used because we realized having talked to manufacturers directly that they might not necessarily understand the upside that that brand will have. The problems that you're solving are, are obvious. You mentioned that there are two that you're tackling at the same time. One was not enough. But I'm trying to understand what's the, um, let's say, the triggers that would lead people to actually go with you. So you've mentioned brands or you know, fashion brands tend to be more open. I would, giving all the publicity or the bad publicity that we see around plastic these days and, you know, how it's destroying our, our oceans. I would assume that, you know, a Coca-Cola or, you know, a Lego or anybody else would just throw themselves in your arms. What, based on the, the conversations you've had, what are the triggers? Why do you, why do you get these, these brands more than, uh, let's say a, a, a manufacturer of, of a different product? I think it's because of the circular economy story. The fashion brands themselves understand that they've got a lot of textile waste. They see it in their warehouse after every season, particularly COVID. That was kind of the epitome of waste uh, building up within their warehouses. So it's a, a very relevant problem for them. And there's lots of new laws coming out within this space. So, for example, in France, there's a new law that's come out that says that any I think it's enforced from 2023, but it's going to say to them that any fashion brand that has textile waste in-house, whether it's unsold inventory, return goods, defected goods, whatever it is, they cannot have it in their warehouse. And if they do, they get fined. And they have to responsibly recycle such large volumes of textiles. And this is a big issue for them. And if we can help them solve that quite quickly um, and start to kind of build our waste stream from there, then we're solving a very relevant pain point. And then, of course, from the hangar um, angle, um, 
plastic hangers are now seen as the plastic straw of the fashion industry. And as you probably remember, when plastic straws suddenly got a lot of media attention and uh, suddenly started to be thrown out of every bar and restaurant you can imagine, that turning point could very well happen for fashion brands again. So we, we say to them, don't worry about either of these issues. We can solve both at once. Okay, great. And the output that you get, that alternative uh, to plastic, is this something that eventually you could sell to a manufacturer for a similar price? It's not a similar price now, of course, because being a startup, there's very few economies of scale. But having a background in factory design and build, in engineering and thinking of scale up from the beginning, I know how we can do so to then receive, produce the volumes and then reduce the price significantly. Okay. So it's more a question of economies of scales than a question of process and technology. Yeah. Okay. And you're a very special startup uh, mm -hmm. because most startups tend to be mostly digital these days. Uh, yeah. We talk a lot about AI, about marketplace, these kind of things. You've talked about uh, scaling. How does that look like? Do you have a plant somewhere or, you know, a mini factory in, in your, uh, one of your rooms in your apartment? How does it work right now? Are you outsourcing this to a partner? Yeah. So we outsource now, but definitely the future is to bring this in house. It's a difficult thing to do when you're starting off with a, a sort of recycling solution, hardware based business. It's much harder than software because People are already scared of the scaling <laughs> angle. But I think if anyone is able to do that, that's definitely someone of my background already have the plans of how we would, how the factory would look, how it would be drawn up. But that's definitely for the future, not, not something we'd have the um, capital to do now. Uh, talking about capital, how are you funded at the moment? Are you bootstrapped or you've managed to get a bit of uh, seed funding? Where are you? So we've been completely boosted out from the beginning, which has been a right. very, very tough journey. We have um, received a, a few small little grants from the uh, state of Berlin. And uh, we're actually currently raising a small round um, from angels and early stage VCs. Um, whether, I'm not sure exactly when that will close, but ideally soon. Um, and then, yeah, we'll uh, see what happens next. <laughs> And is this a question of the stage that you're at at the moment? Is this a, a strategy that you've decided to pursue? Or is this because, you know, you've had some challenges raising uh, funding so far? What's the, uh, the situation? It has been really tough. Yeah, it's been really tough. Um, I've done all sorts of really crazy things in my career. But I think fundraising is probably the hardest. I think it might be, well, one, COVID is probably one of the hardest times to raise during, um, particularly with the uncertainty around the fashion industry and how they're going to deal with with uh, all the changes and the closing of stores. Um, initially had thought impact investors would be the way to go. But what we found is if, uh, most investors are really keen to see that we've already started making revenue. And... That's very difficult to do when you have been completely bootstrapped and created something completely new that no one's ever done. Sales cycles just take long. So I think it will be much easier for us in the future. But this sort of first hurdle has been the most difficult. And talking about uh, making money at the moment, how does it look like? You mentioned that you uh, developed that more sustainable hangar. Are you selling it at the moment or it's a pilot? 
product. Um, we are selling this now B2B and we will be also selling B2C. But we also might be working with hanger manufacturers themselves directly um, to possibly sell the material to them. And you have, what, six, seven employees already on the team? Yeah. I'm really interested in uh, just getting your your thoughts a bit on that journey because coming up with a startup idea is a pretty good start. Uh, getting some initial interest and traction is obviously even better. But running a business, it's different ball game. let's call it that way. And one of the things we've seen with uh, some of our clients or some of the startups that we've interviewed is it's challenging sometimes to move from one person idea and project to getting six, 10, 15 people. What's been your experience with that? I love it. <laughs> I think it's because I'm, I'm very much a people's person. And I love meeting new people. And I, I feel that the more people I have on my team, the more on my side. I love getting to know the people who work with me. I don't see it as for me. I see it with me. They're my team members and we grow together as people. So I really enjoy um, working with other people, not just delegating, but also sharing responsibility. If I'm doing everything myself, then I'm the biggest bottleneck of the company and I think then maybe you would, maybe that becomes an issue of ego, perhaps. I don't think, I, I don't definitely don't think like that. I love to share the work. I love to give people responsibility and sometimes even really throw them in the deep end, which they probably don't like. But in my career, looking back at what I've, I've worked in many different organizations for many different types of um, leaders. And the roles I enjoyed the most were really actually when I was in the deep end and when I had to get out of it and grow. So I tried to do the same for everyone who works with me. And have you looked at uh, for a specific type of person? A lot of founders say that, you know, the first few hires are so critical because, you know, when you have a lot of people, you can hide incompetence. <laughs> But when you are a, a lean and mean team, uh, it's not the case. So when you've hired, is there a specific profile that you look for? And, and is there something that you would have done differently? I tend to look for people who are hungry. <laughs> um, by that, I mean, grab something and run with it. If you're someone who wants to just sort of take every day easy and you know see how things go and you're just happy working and then going home uh, that's not really what I'm looking for I want people to be just as hungry as I am of course they won't necessarily be as hungry as I am because it's my my company but people who want to learn and who want to grow and want to grow into their roles and, re and be responsible for real things and you know not just do something quite small in the background and talking about the fact that you're more on the hardware physical world side of the the business how did you structure the team what kind of people usually you know in in digital you look for engineers or customer success rep what, what kind of roles do you have at the moment well i i'm sort of filling that engineer role too at the moment so in order to fill the rest of the stuff we have people doing other stuff so business related activities marketing related marketing sorry related activities business development uh related activities so sort of fitting i would call it like a jigsaw puzzle and putting all those pieces together of course in the future we'd be looking to hire more technical people too but for now we can't do so i got a few more questions in that 
direction before we talk more about sustainability. Many founders struggle with prioritizing, keeping the team aligned. Yeah. So it's a bit in line with what we were just discussing. It's there's so many things, right? So many shiny objects, there's so much noise. How do you tackle that? Definitely. There's there's a lot of shiny objects, a lot of noise. What I try and do is tend to set quarterly goals and then monthly goals that are related to those quarterly goals. And then within those monthly goals, break them down into sizable chunks of things that need to happen for us to reach those goals. And then from that comes down to, you know, how can, who can work on which tasks so we can get to that end goal. But things change. Things change in the startup pretty much every day. <laughs> so you might have set a goal and then realized that was completely wrong or that took a lot longer than I thought. But if you don't set goals, then you're just going to keep reacting as opposed to actually planning. And that's the hardest thing to do because when you're so overwhelmed with work, it's really easy for you to just keep reacting to what's happening. But if you set goals, that kind of helps you see the wood from the trees and plan ahead properly so that when you get to the end of the month, you realize what you've achieved. Are you using OKRs specifically or? Um, I had, so I did the Google for Startups uh, program, the female finance program true. last year, and they had taught us about OKRs. It, yes and no. I agree that they should be smart goals and that they should be, you know, time, you know, set in, in a specific time. But it's not as traditional as OKRs. I think maybe just a bit more easy simple targets, something that you can tick off and say, yes, this was done. You know, you have a very strong angle on sustainability. That's the purpose to some extent of, of the business. How do you actually measure success at Plyderly? What are the things that you measure that are key for you to be able to say Plyderly is going the right direction, we're making progress? A few different things. So aside from, I think... One would be the amount of interest we get from brands and the types of brands. That's a very key measurement of our brands actually interested in making a change in sustainability. So that's the first thing we look at, how many kind of inbound interests that we're getting as opposed to outbound. And then of those outbound outreaches that we do, what sort of companies are actually responding to those? Is it the big companies or is it the small companies? And what we've actually found is it's actually the really big organizations that are really interested in this. And that makes us realize, okay, clearly, large brands are really realizing how important sustainability is. And if we can help them solve that, then we've made a big impact. So yeah, ultimately, we'll end up measuring the kilos of textiles that we've taken out of landfill, or that we've diverted away. But for now, of course, we're just measuring traction. Another way that we measure this is we use all of our social media platforms to share knowledge about this area. Because one thing we realized is there's a lot of um, education that needs to be done around this. And whether it comes to the types of fibers that you're wearing, where are they made from, or how are they made, what happens to them eventually, how does it decompose, or how textiles are produced, uh, etc. There's lots of education that needs to be done around this. So another way we measure our impact is saying, okay, how many people are actually interacting with all of the blogs that we're sharing, with all of the content that we're sharing? Because that's, I mean, I know that's not necessarily um, a, you know, monetary revenue stream, but we want to be an educational too. And we want to be able to share this knowledge. I also do a lot of talks at schools. I talk to a lot of young people. and 
I believe that I'm, I feel like I'm making an impact when I'm talking to young children and kind of explaining to them how our consumption habits are uh, <laughs> destroying the world. And it's, it's really enjoyable to be able to do these sorts of things and to open their minds to, um, the fabrics they're wearing or how often they buy. And personally, if I can be the reason why someone maybe chose not to buy something or if they thought twice or three times, then I feel like I've at least made some impact in the world. And you are, I think you were selected as the, uh, is it Lafayette plug and play yeah. accelerator? Recent, that was, that's pretty recent, right? Yeah, I started in September. Okay, congratulations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk to fashion brands a lot. What do you, talking about sustainability, what, what is missing, do you feel, for us to accelerate the change? That's a big a question. question. <laughs> yeah, that is a tough question. There's so yeah, much. You also have to hand in a paper at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so much that needs to be done. I think it's from our angle and also the fashion brand's angle. Um, we maybe as a society need to change our mindset and go back 20 years to when, for example, my parents were buying clothes twice a year, not every week. And they were buying for two seasons and they wouldn't necessarily buy every year. They would buy something really good quality that would last them for many years. I think uh, us as consumers can think perhaps more long term and think, will I actually wear this for many years to come? And if not, Yes, it might not. It might be a little bit more expensive. If yes, then yes, it might be a bit more expensive. But overall, you're saving money, so actually, it's a a good thing for the environment, but also your pocket. So I think that mindset of how we consume uh, fashion needs to change. I also think one thing that does need to change is the way social media probably accelerated the problem in the first place. <laughs> So when it comes to influencers sharing what brands they're wearing or what new clothes they have, I think this didn't help the problem. And I think now it's good that, you know, they have to say that this is an ad. But I do think we as consumers of social media need to think, yeah, great that these people are wearing all these different clothes, but do I really need that many? I think that's what we can do. We do need to continue to support fashion brands. But we need to be responsible. We need to kind of put that pressure on them. The more pressure we put on them, say, actually, we want to buy stuff that's sustainable or we want to buy things that weren't made in sweatshop, then um, they will make that change because they will just uh, react to whatever changes that we are pushing to them. Uh, a few years back, I used to uh, work in corporate social responsibility for a, an aircraft manufacturer, imagine. Oh. And... That was the beginning, let's say 10, 15 years ago. It was a bit the beginning of modern corporate social responsibility where, you know, you had consultants who were actually really investing in it in a university professor and say, well, there is a business case for this. There is something beyond just mitigating risk, but it was still a way to protect your company from, let's say, having people showing up and protesting at your shareholder meeting. So. When you talk to fashion brand these days, what kind of mindset do they have? What is driving them towards that? Is this to protect the brand equity? Is it because it would make sense financially speaking? Is it for just because they have that sense of ethics that we need to save the world? What, what do you hear? 
Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of everything, and I think it depends on what is the type of brand that you talk to, because you get a really like we've been speaking to the really high end brands, but also your typical really large fast fashion retailers, and then sort of the athletic leisure wear type brands. I think they all have different goals. Some of the fast fashion brands, they're quite concerned about actually, actually very concerned about the impact they're having and do actually want to make a difference, but there needs to be a business case for it. Uh, so there's a bit of that they're worried about the environment, but they need to understand the financial model behind it. And then I think for the higher end brands, I think uh, there's a bit of both, but there's also a bit more about the storytelling because you need to probably convince brand, uh, customers more that they should pay that added price for what they're selling. So with them, I think it's more about the story. Um, but every brand is different, and also every person you talk to is different. Whenever we speak to people within the sustainability team, they absolutely love us. But then when they – and they understand it completely, but then they have to go through – speaking to different departments within their organization. And then every single person has a different agenda. Whether it's a buyer, they have the financial agenda. It's a marketing person, they have their story. So it's about convincing all of the multiple stakeholders. I also really like the medic technique um, of selling or B2B sales where you find your champion within the organization who helps sell your idea within the organization and for us that's always been the sustainability team or the circular economy rep if there is one okay and just changing subjects slightly you're originally from london or and you decided to move to berlin i remember a few years back london used to be the startup city (laughs) of europe you know getting a lot of funding i think berlin passed london two three years ago and now i think paris is in the lead what made you decide to come to Berlin, the the nightlife when there's no (laughs) pandemic, the raves? Uh, I think it's a few different things, a few personal reasons. Brexit, of course, was one of them. (laughs) Um, That's true. um, But also, Berlin is such a great city to live in, to work in. Um, The living costs as well are much lower. It's kind of the easiest place to move to if you want to move to Germany. And I love that. I love the mindset of people in Berlin. Everyone's green. Everyone, a lot of people, not necessarily everyone, they have that mindset of, I understand why you're trying to work in sustainability or do something sustainable. And it's much easier to convince people within Berlin of what you're doing and why. And I'm not sure necessarily how easy it would have been in the UK, although now I know that things are changing globally. So maybe it would be easier now. I think Berlin is is great for any startup to start their journey here because there's a lot of infrastructure available and a lot of support available um, for people moving here to start a company. And you are a uh, female founder. Mm-hmm. Question that uh, I'd like to ask is, what's been, again, we were saying earlier that you're an engineer, so you may be used to working with lots of men, but what's been your experience so far as a female founder? I initially found the journey quite difficult, primarily, I think, because I didn't know enough founders to share my thoughts with and share my journey with. And that was really difficult. But joining the Google Female Founder Program is probably the the best thing I ever did because it gave me a network of about 20 really powerful women who are just doing everything kick-ass you can think of. And we've kind of become this like support network for each other where we, you know, we meet each other regularly, we uh, go for dinners or, 
you know, we have a WhatsApp group and we ask each other questions. Does anyone know this investor? Does anyone know a lawyer or whatever? That really helps me personally have, you know, that support network that I was missing. Um, but, uh, yeah, other than that, I haven't really, you know, felt anything different. Uh, I think, I think main, maybe the main issue or the thing I struggled with probably the most is not coming from Berlin or maybe having, um, you know, a different background, a migrant background, immigrant background. I don't necessarily have the network of rich, uh, family members or friends who have money for a nice, friends and family first around <laughs> and so that bit was difficult and also creating a completely new new network from scratch of angel investors or venture capital firms um i don't know anyone actually from my childhood started a company so those bits were difficult because it's learning something completely from scratch and not being able to call someone you know enough It seems that you're not busy enough, so you decided to launch Tech in Color, <laughs> a platform enabling community access and visibility for Black, Asian, Indigenous, and minority ethnic female tech founders across Europe. Why did you decide to launch this now? Um, so we actually had so Deborah and I, uh, Deborah's a friend of mine who also did the Google Female Founder Program. Uh, she's the founder of a company called Horticure. Um, We did that program and like I mentioned, the sort of empowering effect of, of having this network of female founders really impacted both of us. And one thing we noticed is that there's a lot of support for female founders, but we haven't found as much for maybe um, founders of ethnic minority backgrounds. And uh, this sort of the difficulty that we've also found is having these warm introductions to investors that you need to have in order to get them to listen to you. Um, I've been lucky enough that I've had a lot of people along my journey who have given me these introductions. Um, and we wanted to do the same for other diverse founders because we realized that that might be the gap that they face to get on the ladder uh, to begin with. And so Deborah and I sort of mapped out what, what do we think would make the biggest impact for people from these sorts of backgrounds. And it really is that connection to investors. And if they can get that funding, if they can, they get that support, maybe they can take a similar journey. Um, so we partnered with Silicon Alley, um, and with London and partners to help basically essentially provide sort of a matchmaking service between, um, the founders who apply but also the um, VCs or angel investors who want to also diversify their portfolio. It's a good timing and it's definitely the right thing to do. I don't want to take too much of your time. I know you're uh, super busy, but I'm interested to know about what what's next for Clyde Early in the next six to 12 months. Yeah. Well, we Any will... major secret you can reveal? One major secret. Uh, we'll be launching a product soon. And uh, that will be available on our website for people to see and buy um, within the next few weeks. So um, they can pre-order on the website. And whenever the link's ready, I'll send that to you. And uh, you can share that around. Perfect. Exciting. What, what's the best way for us to follow you in Clyderly? Is it on LinkedIn, Twitter? Uh, we Both. use all, all the social media channels. <laughs> we use Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And the tag or the name is just Clyde Alina, thank you so much for your time. Really thank appreciate you. it. I wish you all the best for the next steps and uh, hopefully talk to you soon. Thank you so much. 
Thanks everyone for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. As usual, you can find the show notes at stunnena.com. Also, quick reminder, we've launched an online course called Growth Leap, Design Your Startup for High Performance and Impact. You can learn more at academy.stunnena.com. Thanks a lot and see you soon.